if we were given a lot, we should also be able to give back a lot. I had someone say once, you know, anything that can be graded can be degraded. There aren't problems to be solved. There are polarities to be managed. Welcome to Venture Visionaries, where we uncover the stories of the leaders shaping our future. I'm Thomas Agemet, and today we journey through the streets of my hometown, San Francisco, a city of contrasts where challenges and hope walk hand in hand. Now, as a long-term San Franciscan, I know what is amazing about this place. The parks and views of the Bay that I biasly believe are some of the best in the country an eclectic culture of mix of neighborhoods that reminds us about what is so beautiful about the diversity of America. And of course, the innovation that hems and fires up the technology that's used across the world. But I've also seen the city's struggles up close. The rise in the opioid addiction, the homeless crisis, and a downtown area transformed by new realities of work have all left the city with scars. And it feels like you can't go two weeks without another story about the downward spiral of San Francisco. But today, we're not focusing on those struggles. Instead, we're turning our lens to a place where the future sparkles with promise. Picture this, a Faces San Francisco childcare site. It's alive with the sounds of joy. You have children running, playing, their laughter a melody of hope. It's Nature Week and the playground transforms into a camping wonderland where little explorers are learning about the wonders of our world. That's what I got to see on my last visit to a FACES site. And it's in these moments that San Francisco's future seems not just secure, but radiant. And guiding this beacon of hope is Dr. John Skolnick, a man whose life is a canvas of dedication to education and community empowerment. John's story is one of remarkable transformation, from teaching history to high schoolers to leading Faces SF, an organization that's much more than just an early childhood care provider. It's a lifeline for the city's working class families. Now, John's journey is marked by a relentless pursuit of innovation and change, his tenure at Education Alliance and his transformative work in the New York City Department of Education were all great preparation for his role as CEO of Faces SF, where he gets to take his passion for making a tangible difference in people's lives and make it real. In our deep dive today, John's going to share how his personal identity has sculpted his approach to leading Faces SF how he thinks about creating bridges across communities and fostering environments where every child has the right to a flourishing start in life. We're going to look at the multifaceted realms of Faces SF, how they think about tackling the unique challenges of San Francisco's most in-need neighborhoods, the political intricacies of the city, and the trials and tribulations of nonprofit leadership. It also wouldn't be a conversation with John if we didn't explore the lighter side of things. And he will bring his testament joy and humor to the social work. And John's personal anecdotes from his guitar sessions to the joyous chaos of a large family remind us that at the heart of every endeavor, there's a deeply human story. So join us on this inspiring journey as we delve into the heart of Faces SF and the mind of John Skolnick. Let's get started.
you know, how would you describe the dynamics or your upbringing and how did they influence your approach to education in general, where you built most of your career, and then specifically to your work at FACES? That's a great question. And I was thinking about this the other day and talking to someone. And in some ways, my family was just extra in Mm -hmm. all ways. I have eight brothers and sisters. So I have three sisters that come from my parents. So they had three Mm -hmm. children together. My mom became a single mom when she was 27 years old. She already had four Mm -hmm. kids. I have identical twins. So it's like a little bit extra in that way where I had, as I joke, a roommate for nine months. So I've learned to share small spaces since a young age and shared a bedroom until I went to college and shared so much else. Then my mom got remarried, had four more kids. My dad and stepmom adopted their daughter, Alexandra, my sister as well. And so growing up, it was a lot of everything. There was a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of dysfunction, also a lot of love. So my grandparents moved in with us when we were young and Mm -hmm. then across the street. And my grandma would make me school lunches in the morning and do carpooling. And so I really had this sense that it takes a village. We also, frankly, had a lot of privilege. So I had babysitters and, you know, a housekeeper and people who were involved in my life who came from different places who helped me to transcend some of the challenges that come with being in a very complicated home life that the Mm. police were involved with and the courts were involved with. And some of my earliest memories are really sadly traumatic, the ones that you remember the most. But then I also had this whole village that was rooting for me. And I got into education in part, I had five younger sisters. And so I was taking care of them and talking to them and reading to them and watching Rafi, you know, music videos with them. (laughs) And I also had a sense of privilege that because of my, you know, my family was white. We lived on Long Island. I got to go to good schools. My mom had a good job. My dad did as well. A lot of kids with a similar background may not have had that. Meaning they might have had a similar family background, but because they were in a different zip code or a different race, people didn't look at them the same way and didn't have the same expectations that they would Mm. go to college and that they could achieve their dreams. So I wanted to work in education to help make sure that every child, no matter what their zip code was, had the same chance to kind of write their future, regardless Mm. of what was going on at home. You already kind of mentioned your identity and privilege and how that played into your upbringing. How do you think about crossing those identities and creating bridges? And what have you learned? So I think one of the things that I've learned is to be my authentic self and call out the fact that there are differences so that it's not Mm. an elephant in the room when I am with Mm. people who are different from me. Times when I'll talk about my work and say, You might be wondering what a white Jewish guy from New York is doing in San Francisco in communities of color. Just asking that question, you might be wondering what I'm doing here or why, how I fit in here leads Mm -hmm. me to talk about areas that I think do overlap and transcend a little bit of the racial differences, for example, that might exist. And so Mm -hmm. I talk a lot about my family's Jewish heritage and background. And Mm -hmm. I talk a lot about my family's socioeconomic background as well. My grandparents didn't go to college and my grandpa was a cab driver and Mm -hmm. they had a real sense that they weren't entitled to anything and that we should feel truly lucky to have what we have because part of my family was killed in the Holocaust and the idea that we Mm. could live in a country 
and go to school freely and worship freely and celebrate holidays was something that we didn't take for granted sort of in my family. And it was Mm. considered a, a kind of a mantra that if we were given a lot, we should also be able to give back a lot. That generally speaking has enabled me to like keep it real with people. Like I know I'm not part of this community and I want to, you know, understand more. And mm. in some ways I might have more, more ways that we're actually connected to each other than you might think. And so mm. I love those places where we have shared, for example, closeness with our grandparents who helped to raise me when I was growing up. A lot of people mm. can relate to that. Or that experience of just being in a large family where family is really important and you have a lot of siblings and you have to kind of share with them and navigate those experiences. That I think also helps me to relate to some of the communities that I'm working in. And then that moral obligation, I think there's a shared history, for example, in the Black community and the Jewish community about a kind of exodus story, you know, story of uh, slavery to freedom and Mm -hmm. a shared history in the civil rights movement and a recognition that part of our role is to educate our children about that history. I think it takes time, it takes trust, and it also takes a lot of listening to just sort of meet people and say, what's your experience? What can I learn from this? So that we can both be vulnerable. I know you started off as a high school history teacher. What was the path from high school history teacher to CEO of like early childhood education, family support services um, network? That's a great question. And the experience of teaching, I just said to someone yesterday that when I closed the door to room 501 at Washington Irving High School, after I was done teaching and wasn't going to come back to that school, I thought to myself, I may have bigger roles or, you know, quote unquote, more more impactful roles, but the difference that I'm making in the lives of individuals and how rewarding that is, there's nothing like that. There's Mm -hmm. just nothing like being a classroom teacher day after day and getting to know a group of students and building a community with them. It gave me a lot of empathy. I questioned a lot of my assumptions about why the education system turned kids out the way that it did. It made me think sort of two things that became part of my career. One was this system was designed to produce these specific results, kind of to reproduce a caste system in the United States. I had someone say once, you know, anything that can be graded can be degraded. And the idea that we have a group of students who look toward the existing power structure and say, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I hardworking enough? The answer is often something judgmental about those students and who they are and what they value and what their culture is was upsetting to me. And it's something I didn't realize until I had taught. And so I wanted to kind of disrupt that system. So that led into this whole idea of rethinking school because school Mm. for me was boring too. I remember sitting in school in 11th and 12th grade, the police had come to my house, had confiscated my computer. It's a a much longer story, but (laughs) I was not thinking about the history of the Spanish-American War that day. I wasn't thinking about anything except what was going on outside of school. And yet it was just designed with this sort of ideal, platonic ideal of a student in mind. Mm. So I did a lot of work in leadership and innovation, thinking if we could empower school leaders to design totally different kinds of schools with mixed age groups, with more authentic learning, with more Mm. personalized learning plans so that kids could move 
at their own pace, not the pace of the age group that mm. could change education. But then something else happened where I started seeing like school itself is just one part of the puzzle of what's happening in the child's life, as the story I mentioned, you know, shows. Yeah. And so how can we think about both what happens before formal schooling in early childhood when so much brain development happens? About mm. percent of the brain's total mass will be formed by the time you're, you know, four or five years old. A lot of that is happening within the family context. It's happening outside mm. of school. So school is a little more than six hours a day, five days a week, but it's only 180 days a year. So if there are mm. 365 days in a year and half of them, you're even in school at all. Immediately, mm. 50% of your life is happening outside of school. In that half that you're actually going to school, you're only spending maybe a quarter to a third of every day there. See that school itself is an experience that's taking up maybe an eighth, maybe a little bit more of your actual time. So I wanted to think about the families that people lived in and the communities that they were growing up in. And so after trying to start a charter school and there were some political headwinds that made it hard to do that, I got connected to a community-based organization in New York called Educational Alliance. Mm -hmm. And it had been around since 1889, which interestingly is the same date that one of FACE's SF's predecessor organizations was founded. Mm -hmm. And interestingly is when the Hull House in Chicago, Jane Addams was founded that same year. It represented part of this movement in the late mm. 1800s that was focused on, we have a lot of labor unrest in the country and what's going to happen? Are we going to be able to keep this capitalist sort of system going mm. and have a ton of new immigrants coming in from Eastern Europe and other parts of the world? What do we make of these newcomers? People like who are in my family, they don't speak like us. They don't think like us. They don't dress like us. Some of what came out of that movement wasn't so great, right? In the sense that it tried to over-assimilate people and tried to create this one American dream ideal. Mm. The approach that they used was multi-generational. So they were generally looking at children, adults, and often grandparents. Mm. And it was a multi-sectorial. Uh, so it was looking at education, but also health. And also mm. people up to vote and also mm. sure that people uh, had recreational activities and cultural experiences. And I thought, well, this is a really interesting method to look at the whole person and the whole family rather mm. than the more industrial way that our school system has been set up, which sees students as students and doesn't see them as whole people with families, with lived experiences. And so that community mm. center model of looking at the whole family and realizing that we have to look at, you know, we have addiction services there, we had employment services there, and we mm. had early childhood services there allowed us to have a more comprehensive and humanistic view of what people are looking for. And so where that all landed was a kind of theory of what if at critical points in people's life cycle, which is a very, also speaks to my Jewish tradition, right? Mm. When a baby is first born, when we enter adolescence, when we move into adulthood and have that change from living dependently to independently, when we lose a job or we're recovering from addiction or we're entering older adulthood, what if we could provide a set of resources and supports, coaching and classes and community that would help people to navigate these really critical moments when their brains are developing and their lives are changing quickly that mm. often the difference between what we would traditionally call sort of success 
and struggle. Part of what Faces SF does is by helping people get jobs when they've lost their jobs or just want to advance in their career and take that next step from a minimum wage job to a living wage job to a, mm. a job that you feel like really could support your family to thrive. That's exciting to me. When we think about mm. having little babies who are coming in at sometimes eight weeks old or 12 weeks old, and then knowing that we're sending them off to kindergarten and their family and themselves feel good about their mm. and their growth, that feels really aligned to me to this sort of theory about life cycle turning points and giving people support during those moments when mm. it's really hard. And so that's how I kind of came out of the formal school system. It felt like every grade level got the same amount of money. You know, why mm. not invest in people when their lives are actually changing the most and they need the most mm. support? You've talked a lot around some of the critique that you had of the education system, the attempts you've made to change and move that. There's often this dichotomy kind of placed between the ivory tower that is kind of thinking about the theory of all of this change and the community that is driving this change. You interestingly like straddle both of those lines, right? Brown educated, Harvard educated for your PhD. Know you're still an adjunct professor, kind of like the ultimate theorist when it comes to this stuff. And then on the flip side, you lead an organization like Faces that I know at its core is an organization of the community. Where do you feel those two kind of schools of thought and tension? And where do you feel them aligned? That's been a big question throughout is how do you apply sort of research to practice and join the two together? Because the best laid plans of mice and men and women and researchers and academics, all right, off go astray when you are actually implementing on the ground and not creating services that are given to families, but are really co-designed with families based on what they're telling you they need. I do think, though, that there's an appreciation on both sides that's increasing. So we're part of this consortium at the Stanford Center for Early Childhood. And these researchers are really engaged in a very authentic way in trying to understand how to make their research more practical. They know mm. that they don't want to be in an ivory tower. There's a lot of self-awareness about that and mm. a lot of outreach to say, how can I make sure that this research is actually meaningful to people on the ground? And I think for our staff and for our families, they are curious about the latest article. They want to know what the mm. method is to help their children go to sleep. They have a real challenge and their challenge is I'm stressed. This feels overwhelming. And they also have real hopes, which is I really want my child to thrive. I mm. see them walk across the stage for their graduation. And they're willing to tear down walls to make that happen. And so I do think that they're interested in, well, let's learn, like, what would be the most effective ways to teach my child to read? I just mm. spoke to someone at an event recently who said their child was struggling and they realized that they needed one-on-one -on -one literacy tutoring, which mm. research shows that high dosage, consistent one-on-one -on -one literacy tutoring is one of the most effective interventions to teach children to read as opposed mm. to being in a classroom with lots of kids and not really getting that attention. I look for those places where the research sort of overlaps with the urgent mm. of families so that we can make sure that we're bringing to bear the best of both of those. 
the way that I see the places I work, whether it's Educational Alliance or whether it's Faces SF, is how can we create a kind of model that mm. other people eventually could learn from? That model, it's not like it can be scaled to say, let's make like 15 of these around the country because each community, to your point, has its own needs, its own mm. desires, its own demands. But I do think that what we can do is share an approach. And that mm. approach is how do we set up focus groups that we can give families a chance to share what they need and what they desire? Mm. How do mm. we use data to then inform what our next step is in the process? How do we figure out what professional development should look like for teachers based on what they're seeing in their classrooms? You know, I think there's sometimes a false dichotomy, I guess, between academ academia and tickle on the ground work. And I try to bring them together because Lord knows we have big problems and we need every part of the system working on it. We need hmm. staff and parents giving us their feedback on what's actually working on the ground. And we also need people who are in academia who can kind of pull back from the day-to-day, -day, which can be super stressful, try to offer some tools that have worked other places. Parents do not have time to go around and look at the best early childhood centers in the country or mm. do a randomized control trial of what a particular intervention looks like. But I don't think that means that they don't want the information that comes out of that. I'm curious how the political landscape of San Francisco has shaped how you think about what FACES needs and where it's going. I think that one of the benefits of being in San Francisco right now is that almost nobody would say that this is a great place to come to raise a family, that mm. it is just easy. And if you want to help your family to thrive, come to San Francisco. And there aren't that many things that people feel unanimity about. But mm. I think that <laughs> feeling that something's got to give here in this city, and we have to make it easier for people to raise families here is in a very contentious political environment about a lot of issues around how to solve homelessness or how to address the housing shortage, mm. that there has been a kind of rallying around the need to support children and families in part. And I don't think this is a good thing because I think too often we put our judgments on adults who live within systems that are filled with oppression and filled with negative forces outside of people's control. But there is a sense that if you're three years old, whatever is happening in your life, you are not in control of. And so the adults mm. have to step up. I give San Francisco enormous credit because they have done work on supporting children, youth, and families for many, many years. There are a couple of areas mm. where San Francisco has been a pioneer. The mm. park system is one of them. San Francisco mm. has an amazing system of parks. I think people would agree with that. The public health system, starting from the AIDS crisis in mm. the early 1980s, has been seen as a leader in community health. And we showed that again, I think, during the COVID-19 crisis, where the mm. Department of Public Health really brought people together pretty quickly across lines of real difference in terms of ethnicity, race, and zip code. And I also think in terms of early childhood education, they've done well. And we now have been able to pay teachers much more than they're making in many other areas. We've been able to get increased state and local funding because mm. California in general, right? San Francisco sits within this wider context of a state that truly believes that all people deserve health insurance. We're trying to create high quality public higher education for people that's 
one of the best systems in the country. So if I could give California credit on that level and that young children, if the workforce is going to thrive, young children need to thrive so that parents mm-hmm. can go to work. And also that we just want to support families in that way to make sure that they are healthy. And so given all of the contentiousness of city politics, which can mm. be difficult, there is a bright spot in some of the areas that we work in. I mm. don't think, having said that, that the money is flexible enough to be designed in a way where parents are really getting the money that they need for what they need. It's not a trust-based system. Not all the philanthropy is trust-based where they say, mm-hmm. know what the, these folks know what the need is. Let them go decide how to use the funds. Yeah. There's a lot of mistrust because of some of the corruption that's happened at the city government level in how funds are going to be used. And mm-hmm. because that, it creates a culture of compliance instead of a culture of adaptability and innovation. And that's mm-hmm. an area where I'd like to think that we can improve at both the state level and the city level. And particularly, mm. and you know this, we've talked a lot in our strategic plan about building a two-gen model that's really addressing mm. the needs of the whole family. And that can't be done when you segregate the funding and the money and say, you can use it for the kid's snack, but you can't use it to help a mom who comes in who needs diapers for her child. That funding mm. doesn't go there. It goes to somewhere else, apply for this grant or apply for that grant, or just find unrestricted dollars. I'm curious, what does rebuilding trust look like in that context? What do you think it'll take for us to get back to a trust-based system? I think that the system of trust is nested within this system of oppression and deprivation, historically. It's oppression and deprivation on a couple of levels. When you're supporting, and you know this from supporting new entrepreneurs, or if you're supporting an entrepreneur of color who didn't have the same social network as someone else did, or didn't have the same educational background or network as someone else did. And then you say, well, hey, we gave you the money. We gave you the startup capital. We gave you the grant. Why mm-hmm. don't you know how to use it? Well, I don't think that we are investing enough in the pipeline of nonprofit leadership in San Francisco, and particularly leaders of color, so that they have the same resources and social capital as anyone else might in order to know how to hire their very first accounting firm, should they mm-hmm. have an accounting firm. And so some of the corruption that happens might be nefarious, and some mm-hmm. of it might just be sort of a lack of experience. Because historically, some of these communities have really been underinvested in or communities haven't been a part of that change. And they have been on the local boards and grown up through that system to know how the money moves and how the money should work. And Mm -hmm. someone's sort of saying, okay, well, here's a new grant opportunity. You figure it out. And so we can build a system that not only gives resources to communities, but builds leadership within the communities and educational experiences within the communities so that there is a deeper understanding of all the components of running nonprofits. And that's on the system to help figure that out, not just to provide the money and say, oops, you misspent it. It's not to say, right, on the other hand, that there aren't monies that are just misused. But when you have places where there really aren't a lot of job opportunities and they've been economically disadvantaged for a long time and people feel like, well, this is a way that I could 
help my community, you know, mm. you just, to see corruption happening to, in some ex, to some extent, because there's like mm. an out of resource allocation is another way to mm. sort of, <laughs> some people would sort of put that, right? I'm not defending that in any way. I'm just trying yeah. to explain the, or share my impression of the system under which that's created, right? It's the same yeah. way you said to a young child, okay, you can study really hard in school and then you're going to get great grades even though your teachers have these biases against you. Never make a mistake or else you're going to be put on this other path. But if you act perfectly and you follow every rule all the time, despite what's going on in your home and your community, and then you go and you apply to college and you leave your family who needs you in order to mm. go to four-year college, it's sort of putting these expectations on people that aren't often realistic. Mm. Or that child can say, hey, I can go do something on the black market and make money pretty quickly and help put food on the table for my family. Is that corruption in some technical way? Yes, it is, right? How do we understand the context of that and what mm. may happen rather than sort of putting a judgment or a scarlet letter on an entire community because of a few stories that the news wants to share? How do we start to share as a city all the examples of the nonprofits that are using their money so well? I think that would restore trust. You hear about it, like, you know, they say when it, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. It's the same thing for corruption. You're not going to get a news story about a nonprofit that like faces that passes its audit with flying colors every year. It's just not that interesting to people. And yet that's happening all the time. And I've worked in the mm. private sector. And when you see the waste and inefficiency that happens there, and the mm. fact that we actually are audited down to the receipt where I got a coffee for $3.50 and I have to save it because some of the state money came through a federal grant and the federal grant, you know, it goes on and on. I'm thinking, we're doing pretty well. Why don't you go worry about what's going on on like Wall Street and what's going on? <laughs> you know, crypto and what's going on in some of these other places. What is something about you and something about Faces SF that you feel is really important that we've not yet had a chance to get to? I think one of the things that Faces does well and that I've tried to do in my career is balance this idea of the idealistic and the realistic, the aspirational mm. and the ground in front of us day to day, which can be so hard and so real. I talk a lot about this idea of a breathing organization, which I think comes from Barry Johnson, who wrote a book called Polarity Management. The concept or thesis was that at high levels or in very complex organizations, there aren't problems to be solved. There are polarities to be managed. A lot of leaders come in and they'll say, well, for the past five years, we've been doing a lot of inhaling. Now we're going to do exhaling, time to exhale. That's not how breathing works. It's not <laughs> that you just do one for years and then you do the other. <laughs> it's all in that balance of knowing when you're done exhaling and it's time mm. to inhale. And then having that intuitive sense within an organization that now you're done right inhaling and it's time to exhale. What I try to do is create that sense of balance and breathing for sustainability and for trust. A lot of leaders will try to sort of swing the pendulum 100% in one direction without really having the group breathe in that direction. I think that's where the match is. Like Faces works with lots of different communities. We work within the Black community in San Francisco. We have family childcare homes, over 35 of them, mostly Chinese-speaking homes with Asian-American entrepreneurs. We work in centers 
And we work in people's homes. We work in workforce and we work in early childhood development. It goes to what we were talking about earlier in terms of seeing whole people and whole organizations. And so Mm. that to me is how we're going to actually learn. And sometimes when people come to me or ask about my career, how I would sum it up or think about my work, I say, I'm really interested about how children learn, how Mm. adults learn, and how organizations learn. There are some similarities between all of those. And in terms of how FACES is, I think it's my goal is for it to become a learning organization that can change the odds for children and families who have been part of a, a, an oppressive system that hasn't always allowed them to do that. When people meet me, I've talked a lot about that balance thing. You think like, whoa, you're like serious and you have like a serious job and you're in, you're in this intense social impact, social justice warrior, blah, yeah. blah, whatever term people use. And I'm like, I don't want to be a social justice warrior. I want to joke around. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Um, So in talking about these polarities or this balancing act, I think one of the most important things to do when you're doing social impact work that can often feel really heavy and really serious and really intense is that is also not how people live their lives. They live their lives with a lot of joy, a lot of humor, a lot of, you know, sarcasm, and there's some interesting Mm. gossip that happens. And so we actually added to our job descriptions here the phrase joy and justice. We want to hold both of those things, um, mm. particularly for communities that are often seen as your disadvantage or your underprivileged mm. or your, it has a deficit mindset to it that mm. takes away all of the funny joy and humor and the chance that like, I just texted someone today to say like, I need to come visit your site soon. So we can just, I need some comic relief. Like it's mm. been a heavy week. It's been a heavy yeah. few weeks. Like, Here's this video of a mom who's showing her child like a fake teacher and presenting it as though it's going to be their real teacher. And it's actually like a Halloween. Oh, I've definitely (laughs) seen that meme. It was was pretty hilarious. That was a good one. Kids are trying to be polite. Yeah. Wilson, you know, okay. And the mom's like, just like playing a prank on them. And I think we need to build cultures when we're doing this work around justice that also have a lot of joy and a Mm. lot of joking around because... It's just too hard otherwise. And and that's the life that we want to lead or lives that have like a commitment to making the world better. Sure. Mm. But also just like a commitment to living our joy. I'd love it if you could paint in a little bit of color for me what changing the odds might look like. I think if you look at San Francisco and the huge discrepancy in proficiency rates based on racial demographics, I'd like to see that change. San Francisco also used to have a more thriving Black community just in terms of numbers. And mm. it was at some point, you know, 17, 18, 19% of the city and is down to four or 5% of the city. And I think that's because we're not serving families well and they mm. feel they need to leave the city in order to achieve their dreams and the dreams of their children. I don't think FACES itself is going to solve either of those problems. And I want to be mm. very honest about that. I really believe, and it's one of our strategic goals, to work in community for collective impact, to understand Mm. that if we can do a really good job with our early childhood, after school and summer, family support and wellness, workforce development programs, and we can be in coalition Mm. with people who are building affordable housing 
And mm. we work with folks who are thinking about addiction and food security and all of the other issues that impact families. Then we'll start to see that those differences between groups go down, that more families can stay in the city, that mm. college graduation rates and high school graduation rates change. I guess one other thing I want to mention is I think it's on all of us to find those uncommon allies and mm. not see each other as good, bad, right, wrong, and to work together to make that happen. There's a movie that I would recommend to your audience mm -hmm. called Crip Camp. And it's about the grassroots creation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The group that created it started at a summer camp in upstate New York, where they got a say in how that camp was run. And these were children who were severely disabled. Some of them had had polio as children and mm -hmm. therefore in wheelchairs. Others had cerebral palsy or had other physical disabilities and were shunned by society. And within this small group, they created this kind of funky, weird, hippie upstate camp. People looked at them like, you guys are kind of this funky, weird out there group. How are you actually going to get this bill passed to create a space where you can have any job you want and you can be seen in public and get access to public spaces that didn't require, you know, all of the things that the Americans with Disabilities Act did. And they made common cause with World War II veterans like George mm. Bush Sr. And some mm. of the Republican senators at that time and Congress people had this sense of patriotism. And the movie just beautifully shows how across these differences, they're able to actually get people to see their common humanity. If you were to pick one historical figure to run faces once you are done with it, who would you pick? I was talking to someone the other day whose grandchildren went to Malcolm X Elementary School in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And there's Malcolm X Elementary School also in the Bayview. I remember when the Spike Lee biopic came out and then I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And these friends who were, they're older, one of them is close to 80, said, when we were at a certain time, couldn't have imagined there would ever be a school in this country named after Malcolm X. He was a, mm -hmm. a radical, he was dangerous. One of the things I really admired about him and his life was cut far too short was his evolution, that he was mm -hmm. a new thinker who could grow and change over time. And I remember reading about his evolution from sort of seeing all white people as this way to really understanding that there was nuance there and his growth. And so there's a kind of fierceness and intelligence and depth to his mind mm. and writing and his just personal evolution that I think you want in any leader. So there are so many that it's unfair to choose any one person. <laughs> but since I just had this conversation <laughs> on Sunday about Malcolm X and his evolution combined with his conviction, I think that any organization, but particularly one like Faces SF, would benefit from his leadership to truly seeing the equality of all people and the deservingness mm -hmm. of all children. And now it's time for Spoken Stories, our recurring segment where we get to hear from some of the people who actually make the amazing organizations we look at run. Today, we get to hear from three amazing heroes of early childhood education in San Francisco who work at FACES. There's Ashley Hernandez, 
who's a Basecamp group leader. Basecamp is the FACES program for school-aged children providing before and after school care, as well as summer camps. We hear from Christina Chu, who's the education manager from FACES Fetchin Network, which is the network of at-home daycare providers that are able to support working-class parents with local language within the city neighborhood support and daycare. And then there's Samantha Johnson, the lead teacher at the FACES SF Masonic site. Let's hear what they had to say. What makes Faces SF so special is the extra mile the agency goes to ensure children and their families receive the best care and support. Children that attend Faces SF are given the tools to not only further their development, but are given a space to be free to express themselves. We work alongside specialists to bring in music, art, dance, gardening. We go on field trips and more to give the children opportunity to experience something new that they may otherwise not experience outside of Faces. As educators, we strive to build strong relationships with children and their families where they can trust us with any needs that they may have. Here at FACES, we welcome families of all backgrounds and ensure everyone feels represented and taken care of within and outside of the walls. I'm very proud to be part of the FACES SF community. Hi, my name is Christina. What I would say special about FACES SF is that we are an agency that has a diverse group of staff. We would go above and beyond to support family and children that we serve in our agency by talking to them in our home language, by um, supporting them through our workforce, providing care, um, child care for them through our three centers or our 37 um, family home care providers that we partner with throughout San Francisco. Hello, my name is Samantha Johnson, and I've been working for FACES over 11, 12 years. And what makes FACES special to me is diversity. It's very diverse here. And teamwork is a very big, important point to me. I think the diversity that comes across, the name FACES shows it all. Teamwork, we learn to build each other up and help each other out. And we have so many different sites that we can all connect together to get great ideas. And I like that because we always come up with good things and we always try to come together and show love to parents, kids, and each other. That's what makes it special to me. Dr. John Skolnick is remarkable for numerous reasons, but one of them is that he's not just an expert of history with his undergraduate degree from Brown University. He's an expert at his story. He has profoundly explored the identities and experiences that shape him, and he doesn't alienate him from others. Instead, he uses this self-awareness to connect across significant differences, making him an influential change agent in a city not native to him for a community largely different in appearance from his own. John's story embodies hope for us all in a world increasingly divided by identities, politics, and fears. I believe we should all aspire to be a little more like John, delving into our own origin stories to uncover the universal human elements that define us, our hopes, dreams, pains, and challenges. And in doing so, we can find unexpected connections with others. My wish for you this week is to forge a bond with someone you wouldn't have anticipated by being willing to look deep enough to make that effort. I'm Thomas Igeme. 
and you've been listening to Venture Visionaries. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you'll make that one unexpected connection this week. Thank you.